Welcome, everybody, to Today in Space. This is Greco, and we're in for another awesome episode of Today in Space. We're doing the warp drives, warp bubbles, and the EM drive. Uh, you know, the kind of thing that brought this around was uh, there was a lot of questions. I mean, it blew up the internet pretty much about, you know, did NASA create a warp drive? You know, oh my God, you know, blah, all this stuff. And I got a lot of people who uh, pay attention to today in space who sent me articles as, as soon as they saw it. Um, those will all be posted on the page, but what I wanted to do was put an episode out there for anybody who wants to understand what the heck is going on with it. Uh, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things, uh, just insane how, how much went into this episode. Um, I'm fairly impressed with the work I did. Um, I hope it comes across that way. I hope you guys really enjoy this. I, it's very funny being an engineer and trying to do a little bit of comedy here and put on a show is, uh, you know, as an engineer, I really, really want to have the facts there, but at the same time, it needs to be fun and it's, it's, you gotta make you laugh too. So, or at least inside, maybe not outside. You may, may not be ha ha ha, but inside you're feeling a little good. So anyways, uh, it's so funny because you, you end up in this struggle of this is right, but it doesn't mean it's fun. Or this is right, but is it going to make people snore? So I, I had a little bit of that dilemma, uh, but that's my life. That's my, that's my struggle. Uh, and it is real, let me tell you. Uh, but before we get any further into it, uh, I would just like to say I've graduated. Yes, I have <laughs> graduated after seven long years of going to school full-time, then stopping to work full-time, and then trying so hard to work around a system that, through nobody's fault, is built for that to happen. Um, <laughs> I've slightly considered consulting uh, college students who are in the same position, but at the same time, college students are cheap as hell, so I probably would never make any money with it. So... <laughs> Uh, it was really an amazing time. Uh, it's been really surreal um, now that I'm on the other side of it. Uh, it's really good that I'm taking the summer off because I don't want to do anything. <laughs> I do not want to do a single thing. I just want to go to the beach and lie there, listen to music, just read stuff about space and do nothing. Work out. That's about it. It's a lot of things, but basically nothing. <laughs> um, but at the same time, this episode was coming out, and there's so much to do. Um, so it's definitely, the struggle is real. But uh, a few things I just wanted to kind of touch on. Um, one of the speakers at my school was Dr. Bernard A. Harris Jr., a.k.a. the first African-American male in space. I mean, this guy was an amazing speaker. I was so excited to hear that he was going to be speaking at, at the commencement. And everything aside, you know, even the, the walk across the bridge, which honestly felt like Harry Potter, like I was walking into Hogwarts. It was terrifying. But <laughs> his speech was really great, and I wish I had a recording of it, but I don't. Um, but one of the things he had us all do, it was the, the concept of, infinity and he had us all stand up and say i am an infinite being with infinite possibilities and then he had to say it again because <laughs> nobody was really <laughs> ready for that and then we all said it really loud and it was just it's really something great i mean to to hear a man who's been any person who's been to space and they're so they're just a joy to be around. And he talked about his struggles. He didn't come from, you know, he was lucky enough that he was, you know, 
his his parents gave them gave him a situation where he could go somewhere and learn you know and and find a passion like that star trek was one of his favorites he's he's a trekkie um and it was it was just it was really great um he's an amazing man i I hope to meet him in person i would love to interview him for the show Uh, but yeah so that just that saying i am an infinite being with infinite possibilities you know that's coming from a man who's seen the earth from outer space you know that's that tells you something about what that does and only a few hundred people have even seen the world at that kind of perspective so that was amazing and the other thing i want to bring up was this uh this definitive reference guide for life after school that i was given uh it's very interesting um there is a lot of good stuff but <laughs> the first thing i thought of was was just basically just like there's a bunch of aliens and they're like here look this is all the information we've gathered on the humans and how they live their lives please enjoy and it was just this typical nerd school it's just like oh my god like i love it and i hate it but mostly i love it um you know there's tons of stuff in here you know we me and the the the, the brothers of the fraternity that i was hanging out with afterwards um you know we're all we're all looking at this uh, and, and we're laughing at the stuff that's in there because, you know, we're just like, okay, you know, there's some really cool stuff in here. Like there's, there's a bunch of stuff on taxes, there's stuff on like moving out, managing your debt, you know? Um, but then there's also things in there. Like if you've ever, if you've never watched football, how to come across, like you're okay with watching football, you know? And it, it's, it's just so nerdy, but it's it's really good. I mean, honestly, it's it's probably gonna stay on my desk for a very long time. I mean, I would doubt you'd be able to get to this whole thing. There's that much. I mean, 401k explanations. You know, uh, just literally flipping through um, form 1040, <laughs> building and le- versus le- uh, buying versus leasing a car. Everything you could possibly imagine is in this book. And it's just, it makes me think of just this evil, yes, we <laughs> we have found what they do, and this explains everything. So, <laughs> that's, that's me in a nutshell for this last uh, two weeks, just going insane. Um, in a good way. <laughs> in very much a good way. Just a weight lifted off my shoulder. But uh, enough about that, enough uh, with this intro. It's already going a little long. Because we have a fantastic episode moving on here. So what we're going to go through is a whole crap load of stuff. So first, uh, we're going to do just a real quick on the warp engine. What is it? Why do we need one? Then we'll go into the engines that we actually have. I'll go over a bunch of stuff so that if, if you're not aware you'll at least be able to scratch the surface. You will by no means be an expert, but this will at least get you to the point where you could get involved in a conversation. I mean, that's hopefully what I'm trying to do with this show is is give you some of the stuff and get people talking about space. That's what this is all about. It's You may learn from it. That, that would be the best case scenario, but at the very least, if you can at least get into the conversation that's and this show does it for you, then I'm doing my job. Uh, next, uh, we'll go into the EM drive, we'll explain the history of it, what it does, how it works, we'll get into the warp bubble, what it is, how that works, then we'll go, uh, into the, we'll dive straight into where those articles came from, why the internet exploded, and all those things, um, and we'll hopefully, at least in this show's opinion, answer did NASA actually create a warp drive? And you'll definitely get my opinion on the matter. Um, but I will also give you the facts and that I've researched and I'm basing my opinion off of. Um, on the uh, podcast page, todayinspace.net, you'll have all the links that I look to. And I kept them to things that are available to everybody. So you basically, if you have Google you'll be able to find all this stuff. There's a few books 
that I have that I have in print that uh, that'll first of all uh, before we even start I mean the one that helped the most was Michio Kaku's Physics of the Impossible which uh, I'll say later but great read grab that um, it's definitely worth it it goes over everything you could think of uh, science fiction stuff that you know how would that actually happen in real life but um I'll have all that information for you so that you can go and look at this stuff. And this episode will be up there so that if you ever have a question or if you're in a conversation with somebody and you're like, oh, no, and someone's like, oh, yeah, that, that, that warp drive thing, you know, what is that? You can literally go to the webpage, todayinspace.net, go to the search engine at the, at the footer of the page, type in warp engine, and boom, you'll find that page. You'll find everything that links to that topic. Um, and you'll be able to go to all those links. You can be like, yo, dude, boom, there you go. And, you know, the, you know, you can subscribe to the show uh, on iTunes or on any type of podcast reader. Really, you can even listen to it straight from the webpage. Tell your friends about me. So, and again, just scratching the surface, not doing anything crazy, just getting the conversation started on it. So, without further ado, let's let's get cracking with this, man. I'm really excited for this. So... Uh, welcome to Today in Space, and let's talk about some warp drives. Start up the warp engine. What is it? Warp engine is a way for starships and people to travel across space and get around in a realistic t- amount of time by manipulating space and time. They are the things of science fiction in today's world. When you hear warp engine and you're up in your sci-fi, then your head might go to Star Trek right away. They were able to manipulate fabrics of space-time in order to travel fast enough to make a show that lasted 60 minutes, including commercials. They used dilithium crystals and antimatter to create a reaction in the warp engine to then create a warp field and then travel incredible distances. They had their issues throughout the series, with it breaking down, sabotage, or some other worldly issue would ensue. I've been on a binge rewatching The Next Generation, and most of the time, it seemed like the episodes where their warp engine was down was <laughs> just background noise for a plot issue or dilemma that the crew needed to work through. But one episode in particular, called Where No One Has Gone Before, dealt with the Traveler, who was some being who could live between space, time, and thought. Like, these were all measurable variables in his universe. He, with the use of their warp engine, accidentally made them travel across their own galaxy and two others. So, across three galaxies, ending up on the other side of Triangula, and into the galaxy called M33. That meant that they traveled 2,700,000 light years in a few minutes. Just as a comparison, that means the light that's there took 2,700,000 years to get there. If it had traveled from the center. So, at maximum work, it would have taken them over 300 years to get home. The reason I bring this up other than to appease my nerd-centric side, is that at the core, this is at the core of the warp drive need. You know, the ability to travel large distances while the spaceship and the would-be crew experiences only a fraction of the time needed to do so. Why do we need one? To become interstellar. The biggest reason, arguably, from my point of view at least, is that we as human beings could become interstellar. So, when we can do this, we can travel to different planets, star systems, galaxies, etc. If we can get an engine that can allow us to travel great distances and the ship's crew only able to experience a very little change in time, 
then we can truly travel space in a Star Trek-like fashion. In a more serious and slightly terrifying notion, if an asteroid comes and we have no way of deflecting it, we'll at least be posted up somewhere else and the game continues. If the Earth gets hit with a solar flare directly and the plasma blows out our magnetosphere and then with it our atmosphere just slips away into space, the human race survives on another planet. On a lighter note, with an engine capable of traveling large distances and its crew and cargo experiencing a fraction of that time, we could make a trip to Mars doable and maintainable. We could bring supplies back and forth on a regular basis, and we could start up trade routes between Earth and Mars. We can travel to Europa and other satellites or exoplanets capable of maintaining human life. We can have a future that is much more like Star Trek and Star Wars than ever before. But a lot of things need to happen in order for this to become reality. First of all, an engine, a warp engine, needs to be created. The distance to Alpha Centauri with and without. So, through my research, I found one thing that was constantly brought up as a comparison of engines used in space travel. What is the amount of time it would take to get to Alpha Centauri with this engine? Alpha Centauri is the closest star system, over four light years away, which means that it takes light four years to get from here to Alpha Centauri, or the other way as well. When I bring up each engine, I'll bring up some distance that you'll be able to compare each one to. It may be another star cluster, star system, or planet. I couldn't find the distance to Alpha Centauri for each one. And I really wasn't willing to do the math on this one. But that doesn't mean it's not doable. The concept of multi-generational crews versus single. There are two schools of thought for traveling with crews to another star system. The ideal situation is to use a warp drive so that we can go to a place like Alpha Centauri relatively quickly check it out, and figure out what's going on there. Ideally, with a warp engine, we could go there within a matter of realistic time, and then come back, and you wouldn't be that much older. Best case scenario, you'd probably only be a few years old, I'd think. Um, because with the true warp engine, you really wouldn't, you'd only spend the amount of time that you were there. Traveling would be a matter of minutes if it worked like Star Trek. But without a warp engine, we don't have much hope there. With some conventional methods, it would take multi-generational crews to get to another star system. What does that mean? Well, the first crew gets aboard and raises their children, who then spend their entire lifetime aboard the ship. They raise their own children, and those children, hopefully, get to see the next star system. This is all assuming that there's a ship large enough to keep humans on board with enough food, resources, room, uh, etc., it would also need to have some pretty thick and intuitive structures to protect from them from the terrors of space weather. But th that's a whole nother podcast. It'll come in the future. In short, there needs to be some type of shield around you for just the radiation alone. We can go into space easy enough, but all within the Van Allen belt. The best sci-fi type shield we know of the Van Allen Belt, helps protect us from the intergalactic and solar radiation that would otherwise destroy us. But I'm going off track here. The point of this part is to explain that without a warp drive, a wormhole, or achieving speeds as close to the speed of light as possible, then we don't have a chance of becoming interstellar. Otherwise, our children's children could see it. But that means living on a starship for the rest of you and your children's lives. And we'd even mention the idea of returning home. What real engines do we have today in space travel? Let's go through some concepts very quickly so that we can be on the same page. Don't think you have to know this. I mean, I knew some of this stuff, but I still have to look this up and make sure I was right. 
but when we want to talk about engines and space travel, there's a few things we need to clear up first. And you'll by no means be an expert, but you'll at least have kind of scratched the surface. And if you want to learn more, I can very easily direct you to some book or website or anything. So just get in touch with me. First off, most engines, especially our chemical rockets that we use most of the time, are based on the principle that if you throw mass in one direction, you will move in the opposite direction and get lighter. This means you need to bring fuel with you so that you can throw it. The more fuel, the more times you can throw it, and if you use it smartly, the farther you can go and the more moves you can make. Second, the term specific impulse. The technical definition is that it is the ratio of the thrust produced to the weight flow of the propellants. Another way to explain it is it's the change of momentum per unit mass of propellant. Even simpler, how well can I change my momentum with this much propellant? Momentum is, for those keeping score, force over a period of time. Engineers use specific impulse to compare how efficient engines are. That way, at a glance, you can tell whether that engine will work for your mission. A high specific impulse does not mean a high thrust. In fact, chemical engines like first stage rockets that you see launched from Cape Canaveral and elsewhere have very high thrust, but very low specific impulse because they don't run for very long. An ion engine has very low thrust, but has a very high specific impulse because it can run for a very long time. Chemical rockets. Specific impulse, solid rocket fuel, 250 seconds. For liquid rocket fuel, it's 450 seconds. These are the main rockets we use today. If I'm not mistaken, these rockets are all essentially based off the original V2 design from multi-stage rockets by Werner von Braun. The idea is that we can escape the Earth's gravity by going faster and losing weight. That's where the multi-stage aspect comes in. Without losing the giant tanks and getting to those speeds, we wouldn't be able to make it off Earth. If you didn't lose the first stage, you would get to this point where you would just kind of hover there because you couldn't overcome the weight-gravity combo that happens. Losing that first stage and the weight that comes with it is super important to that. Modern-day rocketry and how we've gotten off of Earth and into space has relied on chemical rockets. They have millions of pounds of thrust and help get these massive rockets and spacecraft in orbit, but they don't last very long. In fact, they only burn for a few minutes. This is good for getting off the planet, but for traveling in space, it's incredibly inefficient. Because if you're going to go anywhere distant like another star system, you would need so much fuel that you would never be able to get off the ground. You would have to build it in space just to compensate for that weight. And even then, your spaceship would be massive and completely filled with fuel. It makes no sense. Plus, with chemical rockets, the maximum speed you would reach, you could reach, is 40,000 miles an hour. So forget about Alpha Centauri. That takes four years for light to get to it. It's going to take you 70,000 years with the chemical rockets just to get to the closest star. Chemical rockets are, in my opinion, basically the equivalent to walking around on your own two feet and how you can kind of cover those distances. Ion engines. Specific impulse, 3,000 seconds. How does it work? A filament is heated by electrical current, creating a steady beam of ionized atoms that flow out of the end of the rocket. On Earth, this is pretty useless. There's almost no thrust. But in the vacuum of space, with little to no gravity affecting you, this works very well, especially if you give it time to work. It was tested in outer space in 1998 on Deep Space One setting a record of 678, that's right, 678 total days of firing. It was also used aboard Japan's Hayabusa space probe, where four xenon engines, ion engines, were used to power the probe to the asteroid Itokawa. Once there, it gathered tiny grains from the asteroid and returned them safely to Earth on June 13, 2010. 
Plasma Engines. Specific impulse, 1,000 to 30,000 seconds. This is the roided up version of the ion engine. One example is the Vasimer. Wait for it. The Variable Specific Impulse Magnetoplasma Rocket. Again, another acronym that some scientists was just like, Thank God that kind of made sense, because otherwise we would just have to make up a word. But somehow, they always try to figure out how to make it work. Now, how does the plasma engine work? A combination of magnetic fields and radio waves heat hydrogen gas up to a million degrees centigrade. The superheated plasma then shoots out of the rocket and can create some real serious thrust. Both of these are great engines for today. They can get us to places in our own solar system. Plasma engines could also make a trip to Mars in only a few months. But if we consider them as ways to get around, in my opinion, the iron engine is like roller skates, and the plasma engine is like a bike. Great for getting around as a kid, going from friend's house to friend's house, and maybe down to the park to play some baseball. But if you want to go to the next town, or never mind the next state, we need something better and faster. The nuclear pulsed rocket. Specific impulse, 10,000 to 1 million seconds. How's it work? Well, before I explain that, let's paint a little picture. It was conceived in 1947 by Stanislaw Ulam, who helped design the first hydrogen bomb. And then it was further developed by Ted Taylor, a chief designer of nuclear warheads for the U.S. military. Theoretically, this type of rocket could get a spacecraft close to the speed of light. How? Ah, uh, you know, by just ejecting atomic bombs out of the back of the spaceship in succession so you can then ride the inevitable waves created by the explosions. Sounds like something a child would make up, right? But then again, these men were playing with arguably the biggest, baddest toys ever built. If we take a look back, there was plenty of time and money spent researching this kind of rocket with Product Orion. In the late 1950s into the 1960s, numbers were crunched diligently on paper in order to figure out how this interstellar rocket could be achieved. According to their research, they could reach a max speed of 10% the speed of light and make it to Pluto and back within a year. Sounds cool, right? Well, so did they. And in 1959, a company called General Atomics reported on the estimated size of the Orion spacecraft, which included the largest version, dubbed the Super Orion, weighing in at 8 million tons, having a diameter of 400 meters, and powered by 1,000 hydrogen bombs. The Super Orion was considered a reality, but what stopped it? Eh, you know, just the possibility of contaminating during the launch if it failed. Or, said another way, complete nuclear fallout at the launch site. The limited test ban treaty in 1963, among plenty of other reasons, ended the project. The Orion namesake still continues, though, in NASA's newest spacecraft that launched in December of last year and will be NASA's main spacecraft for going up past the moon to places like asteroids and to Mars. In the remake of Star Trek that came out in 2009 and was directed by J.J. Abrams, they did something very similar to this towards the end of the movie. So, spoiler alert for those that haven't seen it, but to be honest, it's been over six years since it came out, so just go watch it. At the end of the movie, when they are being sucked into the black hole that was created when the red matter exploded on Nero's ship, Scotty releases the warp cores in succession and then detonates them to propel them away from the black hole. This is at the heart of what this kind of space travel would be with this engine. Obviously, it's probably not that scientifically accurate, but I'd say it's pretty, this is as close as it gets. It's kind of cool because uh, one of the listeners, Nick, wanted me to bring up the scene from Star Trek and it fits oh so nicely here. So thanks, Nick. And I hope that answered that for you. The next group of engines are of a different class because they don't expel any mass in order to get the object or spacecraft moving. I'll go into each one and explain how they would work. Gun rockets. 
let's talk about railguns. More specifically, let's talk about railgunning a spaceship into the cosmos at unspeakable speeds and force. Railguns, for those of you who don't know, use the power of electromagnetism to catapult objects at insane velocities and force. Real simply, a railgun is made from two parallel wires of rails, and whatever it's slingshotting is put between them. Then, you send millions of amps of electricity through the rails in the object. This creates a gigantic magnetic field around the wires or rails that sends the object flying down the rails at crazy velocities and huge forces that, if we use it on Earth, any object would be crumpled as soon as it hit the air. As if it was hitting a wall. It's safe to say that any humans on board would be killed almost instantly. So, it needs some fine-tuning, for sure. Now, the ideas for using this kind of thing for space travel goes back to plenty of science fiction stories, including Arthur C. Clarke. You could, in theory, shoot something from a railgun at 18,000 miles per hour and get it into orbit around the Earth because it's falling at such a fast speed, it never has a chance to hit the ground again. It's in constant freefall, thus, orbit. But the issue with the railgun is it's just too powerful for its own good. Real-life railguns apparently break down or need repairs a lot. But let's get back to the fantasy, because that's just more fun. It's been proposed that we put a railgun on the moon. Seems great, right? Just use the rock orbiting us as a station to just blast things into the vacuum of space at pretty much whatever we want. But as soon as you want to send anything scientific or living you still run the risk of damaging it with the force of the railgun. So, as awesome as it sounds, and as cheap as it would be if it didn't break itself and everything else, it's just not in the cards. Now, if we're fighting some alien race and just shooting things at it, maybe, yeah, okay, all right, but let's focus on some other things. The Ram Jet Fusion Engine. This engine is really interesting, and I want to thank Michiukaku for explaining it so well in his book, Physics of the Impossible, which was really helpful with putting this podcast together in two weeks' time, and it's just a great read in general. I highly recommend it. So the Ramjet Fusion Engine, which is just really cool to say, would run on hydrogen, one of the most available elements in the universe. The hydrogen gets heated to millions of degrees and fuses, creates a thermonuclear reaction, and releases that energy into an engine. The specific impulse of a ramjet fusion engine is infinite, because the engine can run all the time, as long as there's enough hydrogen to keep the reactor going. As Michio Kaku points out, if you could scoop up hydrogen as you traveled through space, theoretically, you could have an infinite amount of energy to use as rocket fuel. And if you get enough hydrogen, I would assume you could power other aspects of your spaceship as well. You know, computer systems, life support systems, a zero-gravity dance hall, multimedia, and all the accoutrements that uh, we as early 21st century humans could think up for interstellar starship activities that could be powered with an engine like this. But let's just hope you wouldn't need to have the conversation about why there's no more hydrogen in the universe because someone wants to do a multi-generational halo tournament. But back to the engine. Physicist Robert W. Bussard proposed the idea for such an engine in 1960. Then, thanks to the one and only Carl Sagan, it was brought to the masses. Bussard's ramjet fusion engine would be able to maintain a steady thrust of 1G, the same force is standing on the Earth's surface. Maintain that force for a year, and you can reach 77% the speed of light. Now, because of the incredible speeds of the spaceship, time, according to Einstein, would slow down for the crew aboard. This would require some suspended animation, but after traveling 400 light years in distance to the Pleiades star cluster, only 11 years of time would pass for the crew on the starship. Later on that same journey, you'd reach Andromeda Galaxy at 2 million light-years from Earth, and only 23 years would have passed for you on board. According to Michio Kaku, if you kept 
going, the spacecraft could reach the end of the visible universe in the crew member's lifetime, but billions of years would have passed on Earth. That's the funky thing about traveling space without a warp drive. You can do it, and time could slow down for you, but time still passes the same for everything traveling at their own speeds. Without a warp engine, time wins. The Solar Sail the solar sail is one of my new favorite things. It makes so much sense. It makes me wonder why it's taken so long to come to fruition. I mean, there are a lot of things that need to happen to test new technology, but the idea is by no means new. Many people, especially those who watched Johnny Carson on late night TV, can remember when Carl Sagan brought the idea to the masses. But the idea of solar sails predates that to way back in 1611, with Johannes Kepler's writing. Kepler is a pretty popular name if, if you're into physics and uh, other high-end math. You'll hear Kepler a lot. The idea is simple. Manipulate the tiny but relatively steady pressure from sunlight to your advantage. So basically, use the sun's light like a steady, constant breeze and keep accelerating. Keep going faster and faster. Go long enough and have a big enough solar sail, and you can travel as fast as half the speed of light with no propellant. That's less cost and less weight, both essential to space travel. You always are balancing weight and fuel when you're planning a trip into space. The specific impulse of a solar sail? I'm not too sure, but like an ion or plasma engine, it could run for a very long time. Essentially, as long as there's enough sunlight to keep it moving. What's better is the sun would keep providing sunlight so you could run for as long as you have the influence of sunlight. I would assume you could keep orbiting the sun in a way to keep accelerating and slingshot yourself out once you've got enough velocity. Then just keep using the sails and other planets and you could really get going fast, all with no propellant. Here's a really cool idea that I never thought of before Michukaku's book. The idea of laser sails. Yep, no, you, you heard me right. Laser sails. Essentially, all we need to do is mount massive, powerful lasers on the moon, put like thousands of them up there, and fire them continuously for like, ever. The solar sail only needs to be built in space, and be a few hundred miles wide. But if we can make that happen, we have something with an infinite specific impulse, and theoretically could reach some of the nearest stars in about eight years. Other than the lasers and building in space, the solar sail could be made today with today's technology. But as recent history has shown, solar sail technology has had its issues. Back then! In space. In 2001, an attempt to launch a solar sail failed. In 2004, two small sails were successfully deployed into space. In 2005, the Planetary Society lost their solar sail aboard Cosmos 1 on its way to orbit. And in 2006, the 15-meter solar sail that made it to orbit successfully failed to open the sails completely. Fortunately, there is some hope on the horizon. Bill Nye, the science guy in the Planetary Society, recently launched the light sail aboard a ULA Atlas V, along with some nine other CubeSats and the Air Force's unmanned X-37B mini-shuttle. According to updates from the Planetary Society, the craft was doing well a few days after launch, and they were communicating with the tiny three-stack CubeSat. The sails should deploy in mid to late June. The most recent update that came from Bill Nye as of May 27, 2015, shows that they lost contact. The official statement for them is as follows. After a successful launch into orbit aboard a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket out of Cape Canaveral, the Planetary Society's light sail spacecraft went silent after two days of communications. The Solar Sailing Spacecraft Test Mission, a precursor to a 2016 mission, 
has been paused while engineers explore a suspected software glitch that is believed to have affected communications. A reboot is necessary to continue the mission. Upon reboot, the LightSail team may initiate manual deployment of the spacecraft's Mylar solar sails. I wish them well for this portion of their test flight and that the re- reboot goes well. You know, this test flight is a prep for next year's mission by the Planetary Society. And their Kickstarter, which went out to raise, I think, initially 120000 and then hopefully 200000 was yesterday up to something like $750,000, all by people who, you know, helped donate on Kickstarter, me being one of them. Uh, you know, they are trying to democratize this space travel, you know, and so, you know, for everyone involved, you know, it's it becomes a thing for all of us now. It's kind of cool. I mean, it always was. But, you know, people need a little something else. I mean, we're, we live in the age of Facebook and selfies and all that jazz, so why not get excited about spacecraft? And for only a dollar, put your name on something that's going into space. I, I mean, listen, I, I'm just saying, it's it's well worth it. Check it out. For a proper definition, I refer to emdrive.com. The principle of operation is based on the well-known phenomenon of radiation pressure. This relies on Newton's second law, where force is defined as the rate of change of momentum. Thus, an electromagnetic, or EM wave, traveling at the speed of light, has a certain momentum which it will transfer to a reflector, resulting in a tiny force. So the idea behind the EM drive is to use electrical energy and directly convert it to thrust. This would be done through the use of electromagnetic microwave cavities. History! The concept for the EM drive came in 2001 from an idea to drastically cut the costs for the satellite communications industry, something that we all use in some form or fashion. Basically, the satellite communications industry uses an orbit called GEO, or geostationary orbit. It's a circular orbit at 22,236 miles above the Earth's equator that goes in the direction that the Earth rotates. Launch costs to get there are high, because you'll probably launch to LEO, or low Earth orbit, and then use a second stage and fuel to get into GEO. Low Earth orbit is an orbit around the Earth with an altitude between 99 to almost 1,243 miles above Earth. At maximum low Earth orbit, that's an altitude difference of 20,993 miles. And performing maneuvers to get into circular orbit and matching the speed needed for the satellite requires a serious amount of fuel. An EM drive might take you a bit longer, but you save tons in weight and fuel, and thus tons in money and cost. The idea for the EM drive was created and put to the test by a research and development program at Satellite Propulsion Research LTD, or SPR, in the good old United Kingdom. Roger J. Scheuer was the head of the project. According to the SPR, the system performance offered would half the cost to GEO and extend the operational lifetime of the satellite. In fact, there's an entire tab on their website, emdrive.com, that goes through all of the advantages, and there's just too many to put on the podcast. But check that out if you'd like. Initially, when they released their experimental testing data, it won them an award of feasibility study under the DTI Smart Program, which completed their theoretical work, allowing them to create an experimental program. Their test data confirmed the theoretical thrust predictions, which is one of the best things in any type of experiment, big or small. It got them a research grant from DTI after they independently reviewed SPR's work. With that grant, some loans, and an investment, a demonstrator engine was created. They built and successfully tested the engine in a static or non-moving test rig, as well as a dynamic rig. 
When they released their test results, it hit the scientific community, and they were not convinced. They figured that because the EM drive had no propellant, and this lack of expelling propellant would leave nothing to balance the change in spacecraft's momentum if it were able to accelerate. In 2010, Professor Yuan Yang in China started to publish her research on the EM drive technology. In 2012, her paper reported that her EM drive had more input power at 2.5 kilowatts and showed test results of a thrust of 720 millinewtons. Not a lot when you're comparing engines, but that's a whole lot more than nothing. Something must have been going on here. Professor Yang released a paper in 2014 extensively reporting tests with the internal temperatures from thermocouples that were embedded into the engine. SPR reported that if Professor Yang's engine was installed on the ISS, it could provide enough of a change in velocity that it could compensate for the station's natural orbital decay. As we've mentioned before on this podcast, there are a few spacecraft that go to the ISS and perform these burns while they're up there. And these burns help bring the ISS back to its proper orbit, because no orbit is perfect, there's always going to be some type of decay. But this costs weight, which costs money, and every bit of savings counts. So if the ISS could strap one of these babies on there, it could use the energy it gains from its solar panels to power the engine. That means we could potentially save enough money and keep the ISS up there and future stations in orbit for much longer. All this amazingness aside, though, Professor Yang's reports did not offer a scientifically accepted explanation for how the EM drive could produce propulsion in space. This is where Dr. White comes into the picture. No, no, not Mr. White. Dr. White works for NASA. He proposed that the EM drive thrust was due to something called the quantum vacuum, which is supposedly the lowest possible energy for a quantum state. He said that they behaved just like another drive, which used a method that electrified propellant and then directed it using the magnetic fields to push a spacecraft in the opposite direction. Essentially, he said if you compared the two, then the fuel source from the quantum vacuum is just the virtual particles from the microwave. Naturally, the scientific community was not convinced. Apparently, the quantum vacuum can't be ionized and has no frame, so naturally, you can't push against something without a frame because that requires momentum. So to sum it up, all of these tests by SPR, Professor Yang, and Dr. White showed that you can get a thrust and even gave an explanation for why it works. But none of these tests were done in a vacuum, like space. So you can have all the data you want, but you ain't going to prove nothing without something that can be shown to work in the environment of space. Or just simply a vacuum. No one in the scientific community was going to believe any of this, since the test results were more likely due to natural thermal convection currents that came from heating by microwaves. Now we come to today, and the reason behind the articles entitled Did NASA just produce a warp bubble? EM drive could lead to warp drive. Or Has NASA really created a warp drive? Or NASA may accidentally create a warp field. Now, let's break it down and explain what really happened and why most of these articles' titles seem to shift around a little bit. According to NASA's spaceflight, Paul March, who is an engineer at NASA EagleWorks, reported in their forums about the warp drive technology. The thread itself had over 500,000 views. For a scientific thread, or just topic in general, that's very impressive. What did Paul March post? He reported that NASA had successfully tested the EM drive in a hard vacuum for the first time ever. This was the first time that any organization reported a successful test like this. Thus, NASA EagleWorks was able to deter the haters with their notions of thermal convection being the cause and gave actual test results that can really mean something. 
At this point, there's something beautiful happening and something that could only happen in an age like the one we live in with the internet and communication technology. Scientists, engineers, enthusiasts from multiple continents were able to come together and discuss the research. As NASA Spaceflight put it, they joined forces on the nasaspaceflight.com EM Drive Forum to thoroughly examine the experiments and discuss theories of operation of the EM Drive. Paul March saw this and was involved in the conversation, sharing test data and information with the group to help with any missing information and keep the great quality forum going. This wonderful combo of NASA and NASA Spaceflight make for an incredible massive knowledge on an incredible forum. Make sure you check it out if you're interested. It's obviously way too long to go into here, but it's definitely worth a look through. Now, it was at this point in the research where my head hurt a little bit because I'm like, okay, microwave emission, tiny force, it's kind of like an ion engine. So where is all this talk of a warp engine coming in? I mean, it wasn't like you can't get it with this engine, so they... They didn't just create a warp engine. So anything that told you that was a complete lie. So then the warp field stuff, where did that come through? Well, in that same test from Paul March, apparently NASA used some tool that measures the variances in the amount of time that light takes to travel in a certain path, right? So when the lasers were fired through the EM drive's resonance chamber, it measured significant variances. So, incredibly, it showed that some of the beams were reading that they traveled faster than the speed of light. And if those readings are correct, that apparently means that the EM drive is producing a warp field or a warp bubble. So, that's where this whole thing comes into play, where... The, you know, did they create a warp drive? It's based on the fact that they may have produced a warp field if, in fact, these lasers are traveling faster than the speed of light. So, what is a warp bubble? Well, in order to figure out a way to travel faster than the speed of light, without having to try and break the theory of relativity, a physicist named Miguel Alcubierre thought up the concept of a bubble in space-time. That bubble would travel faster than the speed of light, all while the ship inside it was stationary. The bubble contracts space-time in front of the ship and expands it behind it. But the original concept was a spaceship inside of a flat ring. So this would require an amount of energy that just would never work. We would never be able to make that much en energy on a spaceship to make that work. But, all of a sudden, Harold Sonny White, yes, Dr. White from NASA's Johnson Space Center, simply changed the ring into a donut shape, essentially making it 3D, and that simple adjustment made the warp bubble something that could be created for a realistic spaceship. So basically, by going from the ring to the donut, all of a sudden, the amount of energy changes, the, the equation, the calculation changes completely. And now it's, it's a total possibility. I remember being in college when uh, I know word was going around that this happened. So it was very, very soon that this, this concept had come out. And I remember talking about it, just my mind being blown, you know, just trying to learn this stuff and just thinking, oh, man, could you what a like what a like that's that's someone who's smart, who just who just thinks outside the box and does that little. But what if you did this? It's you know, it's someone already had the idea. It's it's being the uh, the Ford of the uh, the industry or the product, you know, you, you didn't invent it. But you made it something that works. So to kind of bring it all together, you know, all right, so the EM drive could have produced a warp bubble, which means that we could have a warp engine on our hands here. That's if, if, if we're uh, correct 
with those readings. So that's awesome. I mean, that's that's great. But everything else, you know, what else can we do with this stuff? I mean, we said before, you know, strap one of these babies on the ISS and you're going to you're going to save tons of money and apparently tons of uh stress that happens from these boost reboost maneuvers could be saved and then you know <laughs> the structure of the iss would be much better um and any other future space station that would have to use the same type of thing you know um if the technology really advances and these these em drives get more powerful and stop being you know the millinewton force that the that professor yang's uh engine had and they start getting up to the megawatts and and having really really high power engines we've got a real real good situation on our hands you know for we can start making missions to mars and this can really kick off but a lot of stuff needs to happen i mean we already saw something simple like the solar sail has had such a hard time getting its way off it's been plagued with uh mission failures and just getting it up there and then you know uh just technology moves as fast as it's going to you know and some have a better (laughs) route than others let's hope this one goes a little bit better um if the engineering can come together and the physics behind it and the people who are at the head of it right now i mean that's really i think what's so important about this em drive stuff that's happening is it's at a point where all these people who are kind of pioneers in the thinking behind it, if they can stay ahead of this, if they can really keep pushing and then hopefully teach down to the next generation, we can really get these things to start moving, you know, and that's going to have to come together with engineering at some point too. Um, But it looks very, very good looking forward i mean this it's it's incredible with all this research and all the stuff that you guys have listened to today uh there's there's a whole lot of stuff but really i guess the important thing to take away is did nasa create a warp drive no (laughs) did they produce a warp field maybe maybe that's what the data is showing or at least as of uh the the last article that i've read so if that stuff's right we're doing some pretty crazy sci-fi stuff and it's gonna be insane if we actually get this stuff to work all right so there you guys have it there is the warp engines warp bubbles and em drive episode i really hope you guys enjoyed it uh i really uh do want to apologize uh for you know, when I put these big episodes out, I've been uh, underestimating how long <laughs> it's going to take. It's a totally different format from the show that we do regularly with the, you know, the kind of talk show aspect of it. But just know I beat myself up enough about it. <laughs> so uh, if if you're worried about me uh, not feeling bad, don't worry, I do. Um, I just want to, you know, as as bad as I feel about not putting them out on time... I would much rather sacrifice that to put out a much better product. And I'm not going to lie. I think with this extra day, this episode is 10 times better than it was originally. And that's because of you guys. And for all the stuff that, that you guys keep following me on the Facebook page and Twitter, and you keep coming to the page and subscribing to the podcast, I really want to thank you guys for all of that, Uh, and because of that, and thanks to you, I've actually been invited to NASA Social. NASA Social is uh, brand new to me, and it basically gives me the equivalent of a press pass to go to an event. I'm going to be going to the New Horizons Center uh, down in Maryland, and it's going to be incredible. I am so stoked. I'm so pumped. And I have so much to do. <laughs> so many things on my mind on on how the show is going to go. You know, it's my first time at one of these events. Um, I'm going to record and video videotape 
as much as I can, and it's going to be a really, really big episode, and uh, that's going to be the weekend of June 5th, so uh, look for an episode in the uh, the coming week after that. Uh, I'm going to be talking about everything Pluto, all things Pluto and New Horizons. It's going to be amazing. I mean, there's already been some new uh, high-res images, and by June 5th, June 6th, we're only about a month away before before Pluto is right there, right in front of New Horizons, as New Horizons does its flyby. I mean, it, it's, I'm so pumped. There's, it's, I'm just like a geek in, in, I don't even know, what's the equivalent of like a, like a, um, you know what? What's the thing that a, like a? I don't want to say the fat kid in a, a you know, a coffee shop. No, a cake shop. Cause that's that's just weird. Anyways, I think you get the point. <laughs> I think you get the point. I'm super excited. So excited I can't make any sense. So it's incredible. This summer is going to be something that I don't think I've done in a very long time. It's going to be filled with so much stuff guys I have I don't know if you guys know you probably don't but I have so much content coming to you guys this summer like between videos music this NASA social stuff I don't even know are you guys ready I, I, I'm ready I've been prepping for a long time but I want to know if you guys are ready because I am pumped to take this show to the next level now that school is over and I can finally concentrate on for a small amount of time this one thing i've been i've been fractaled as far as like where i can place my energy and my concentration and i am so excited to do that for you guys so what i'm trying to say is thank you for all your support for sticking with me through the hard times and get ready for the next era of today in space. Uh, I'm being serious. I mean, the show is going to change. Um, we will be finding a day <laughs> that this show will come out. I really do want to do it every week. It doesn't mean it's going to be a show like this. These shows will take time. But if it's something in the form of a weekly update or a supplemental episode, anything, that that should come out once a week. I'm working on getting like some kind of voting system on the website so that you guys can vote and tell me what day you'd like to see it. I mean, I giving the vote out there, it doesn't mean <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm going to wait for the vote. I'm I have a date in mind, but I would like to hear what you guys have in store. Um in the meantime, before that comes out, if you want to email me if anything, go to todayinspace.net go to the contact session section, fill out that form, or you can go and email me at todayinspacepodcast at gmail.com. Basically, the form on the website is the same. You're, you're going to get in touch with me either way from that email. So uh, get in contact with me there. On Twitter, it's El Greco, E-L-G-R-3-C-O, which is also the link fed on the homepage of the website on the com link. Um, as what else? What else do we have? Um, oh, the art contest uh, has finished. All the entries are in. Um, and we already have one winner for the com link. And we'll be showcasing that later this summer. Um, you know, it still needs to get finished. I'm giving them ample time to, to really make sure that it comes out well. And I've got my some of my own art coming out. And me and John have been working on some music. It's going to blow up here in just a bit. I'm working on some projects that I've been filming. I'm going to be putting those all together and, and dubbing under them. Uh, so that way I can kind of explain what's going on. It's going to be a whole 3D printing section. It's going to be amazing, guys. I have so much that I just am so excited to release to you guys. But it takes so much work. And I'm only one man. I'm only one man with so much time. But I'm enlisting the help of my friends, people who are also very passionate in in science and, and just engineering. There's a lot of engineers, but you know, with John, it's music, 
people who are passionate about the work that they do because then it's not work. Then it's just something that you can do and enjoy. And and that's what this podcast has been for me. So thank you to everybody who's subscribed to the show, everyone who's who's listened, followed on Facebook, the Today in Space podcast page, follows me on Twitter, looks at this website, every one of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we'll be back very, very soon with another episode of Today in Space. Thank you again, and have a great week.